You're listening to The Weekend Take, and now your host, Sean Schaefer. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of The Weekend Take. I'm your host, Sean Schaefer, and joining me this week is cinematographer and digital image technician, Sam Gove. Sam, how's it going? Doing good, Sean. How you doing? Not doing bad. Uh, so, Sam, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do, and I know some people have a preconceived notion of what a digital imaging technician is, at least people in the industry, but how does that preconceived notion differ from what you actually do on the day-to-day basis? Yes, yeah, DIT has become a pretty common acronym thrown around on sets, and I think people kind of uh, forget what it really initially started out as. Most of the DIT gigs I get, you know, are like just data wrangling jobs, and it's really like, oh, can you just put the footage in, you know, in a drive or whatever? And of course, you know, you get the footage at the end of the day with a 5,400 RPM drive and they don't understand why it's going to take all night. Uh, but uh, but I really like kind of go back to like the classic definition of things. You know, it's like my cinematography career has led me into needing to like truly understand images from their from their source, you know, because I like to work from like the audience backwards and the audience like where they're actually receiving the story isn't even at their eye level. It's their connection from their eye to their brain. So like I study a lot about like how, not just like how light actually behaves, but how how we perceive it and its behavior. I've been working with Doug Trumbull a lot lately. He's the guy who like created the special effects for 2001 and Blade Runner and stuff like that. You know, we're really working with camera systems and workflows that aren't really standardized in any way. <laughs> so you can't just like go look like, how is the industry doing this? because that's what we're trying to figure out. So I approach things from from that side of things, you know, like I'm an old school film nerd, which I think surprises a lot of people because I'm so entrenched in the technological side of things. But I think my deep and vast understanding of both mediums, you know, is is how I understand the one is actually superior to the other. But they they really all work together. The stuff I'm doing now with Doug Trumbull is 120 frame per second stereoscopic 3D intended to be projected in a pod that has, you know, like 150 to 180 degree field of view. So, I mean, we're even talks with like, you know, the Facebook people on like how to deliver things to, you know, their new headsets and all that kind of stuff. So I'm in it up to my eyeballs, (laughs) pun intended. This new technology and the work that you're doing will also apply to possibly kind of the future of projection? It's a weird thing to say to people because they usually, it's, it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around. But since the projected image was first a thing, when you put, put light on a screen, you're really only seeing the light that's reflected back at you. So if you have a perfectly white screen or you know a, a silver screen, a tinted screen, you're really only seeing seven stops of light. And... Everything that you're shooting, you know, you hear Rec 709. I mean, that's that's that seven stop range. And only very recently with the invention of HDR displays, were we able to actually show the audience deliver to the eyes more than that seven stops. Now, there's a lot of misunderstandings out there about what HDR is, because I think there was that whole wave of like HDR photography. HDR really is just the addition of like an extra 10% of brightness in the brightest parts of the frame. It's almost imperceptible unless you look at, you know, an HDR image and an SDR image side by side. 
but that's not to say that you know unlike the early days of you know hd and all that stuff if you show it to your grandmother right next to another monitor she will absolutely without a doubt know that the hdr image looks better she'll never know why she'll never be able to quantify it most people can't but it really it really grabs you grabs your attention we're dealing with like laser projectors and stuff now for the first time manufacturers are starting to produce these and put them out in the world so in in cinemas we will be able to get you know beyond this p3 world and actually have cinemas that can produce these same hdr images that are pretty much only capable of being displayed by like very very high-end uh home displays and pro displays that are, you know, $40,000 and above. It's a very exciting time to be a cinematographer, especially one that really likes to follow his image through the process from conception to shooting and then out through distribution because there are so many variables now that exist that were never an issue in the past. The future is real, and uh, I think... The communal movie-going experience is quite different than the home movie-going experience. I, I recently was at a premiere, actually a, a mutual a friend of ours, I think he, uh, the director was on your show recently, um, for Spy Intervention. I had been lucky to be privy to many early cuts of that film, so I've seen it many times throughout its creation, and it wasn't until I really saw it in the theater with an audience that like all the extra laughs came through and it was a much different film than I had seen up to that point. And I think that um, in the future, we're going to have to look towards another like reason to get people out of their homes because I mean, home theaters now are so unbelievable. I mean, they look better than your your average screen. You're dealing with this cutting edge now, but you said in the beginning that you're an old school film nerd and there's good reason behind that because you and I have known each other for well over a decade now. Um, so I know a lot about you, but I know since you could essentially walk and function, you've been involved with film and film sets, correct? Yes. I mean, technically I was on legitimate film sets before I could walk. I think I was a I was a baby in a Tylenol ad <laughs> when I was like two weeks old or something like that. So my parents, of course, were um, filmmakers. My dad was a director and cinematographer. My mother was a producer and actually managed a claymation studio for a decent amount of time. I mean, nepotism full force, but I, I, <laughs> I really think people kind of misunderstand what that life is actually like. My parents were not very successful filmmakers. In many ways, it was almost a hurdle. The thing I, I really had going for me was just the, their understanding, but I definitely had to carve my own path. I was extremely lucky that before I even got out of high school, I was already you know, working as full-time as you can work when you still have to go to high school in commercial production. And it was at a time, this was when, well, let's see, I graduated in 2004. So this was like pretty much around the time the F900 was coming out, which was at that time, uh, the Star Wars camera when Star Wars episode one was shooting digitally and it was like blowing everybody's mind. They didn't know how it was happening. Well, I was trying to help other aging uh, cinematographers understand the differences between old school celluloid and this new 
digital tape medium. They knew it looked good, but they knew it didn't look like film, and they didn't know why, and nobody knew why at the time, so that's how we got lettuce adapters, and just all started from there. I was like right in there at the ground floor, but always knew night and day that film looked better. There really is um, an extra element of film that doesn't exist in digital, and it can't exist in digital because, I mean, there are certain physicalities to film that can never exist in digital. And when you really want to get down to it, at the end of the day, film is the best archive medium that we have for motion pictures. It's just a fact. Digital is finite. It does not last because even if you can put the hard drive next to the 35 millimeter film print in the salt mine, you also have to put a computer next to it and hope that that thing doesn't suffer bit rot because you can't just plug a hard drive in and expect any computer to read the ones and zeros because languages change in computers. But you can hold up a piece of film to a light source and you can see an image no matter what. So aliens later on will, will see film, but they're not going to see digital stuff. And you can keep scanning I Love Lucy up to 8K if you want to. That's how you can kind of play distributors and producers against their own wallets. <laughs> That's a pro tip out there for you uh, DPs trying to shoot on film. There is, a, there is a financial incentive. There are things that digital is doing better now than film or, well, did for a time. But that's not really because film is in any way inferior. It's just because we kind of, you know. We took some step backwards in many regards, and we're just now getting back up to speed. Also, I like to throw in there that, uh, you know, a lot of people, they see the marketing for how films are shot. Like everybody thinks that Wonder Woman was shot on Alexa, which is absolutely true. There's a lot of Alexa shots in Wonder Woman because the cranes and all the crazy stuff that they use to shoot all the action sequences aren't really set up to work with film cameras anymore. But all the close-ups of all the dialogue scenes... That was film, baby. <laughs> so food for thought. We've spent all this time trying to get digital to look like film. You know, we're trying to get back to what film was. So it's easy to throw corrections onto log footage to make it behave like film. But at the end of the day, it's it's not film. Correct. It's not. You can get very, very close. Uh, Yedlin there has written many papers on how digital can be identical to film, which I'm not going to go all the way out on that limb with him because there is that there is what happens to a film in 20 or 30 years. And we know with film, I mean, you can throw Ben-Hur up, a nice print of Ben-Hur up. Your average person who's only really watched television and gone to regular local yokel theaters that are projecting 2K, it will drop them. Seeing like a 65 millimeter print, like nicely focused and projected, it's a truly one of a kind experience. The fact that we can do this with content that is so old, really, I think is a thing that a lot of people just don't know is even possible. And that's the real power of film. Well, the reason we're all filmmakers is because we want to tell stories and we want to tell stories that are going to matter to people that we've never met before and generations on. And if we're just, if we're just making things that can literally go away if the wrong server goes down, I know people that have worked on films, digital films, for digital distribution companies and stuff that never even got a copy of their own film. And then the digital distribution company like went under and disappeared and they don't have a phone number to call and they can't even watch their own movie. Like it's gone from the world. My father's film, which was shot on film, 
only had two film prints. One was lost in a flood and the other was lost to a weird landlord. <laughs> and so there is no copy of that film in existence outside of a standard definition DVD that's missing a half hour from the original cut. The archiving possibilities or abilities of film alone are reason enough to to keep it around and to really keep it as our primary medium. You're listening to The Weekend Take. Visit our Patreon page to become a patron of The Weekend Take. And for as little as $1, you'll receive exclusive content and perks. I know we've kind of got off in, into the weeds, but you've been fortunate enough, I guess I'd say, or, or put yourself there purposely to be there as we initially started ushering the transition from film to digital. Where did your, I guess, appreciation of the captured image kind of start? Were you into photography before or was it always motion picture? I started off with motion picture primarily. You know, my parents are filmmakers. My mother, of course, gave me her her film camera from when, from when she was in college to me at a very young age, probably way before I could appreciate it. So I always had that knowledge base but I was really taken in by by movies, by by films and specifically movies, feature films, because I learned early on at a young age that television was a, a neutered medium. You know, I mean, you weren't going to see the action you wanted to see. You weren't going to hear the special four letter words that we all loved as children. The running length. I mean, it was just short. You couldn't really tell a compelling story in 20 well back then it was i think 24 minutes before now it's 22 and i noticed early on that anything i shot with my parents high eight camera did not look like a movie and that no matter how hard i tried to act cool i looked like a kid with his underpants on the outside of his pants because he's not a real superhero you know and i was just obsessed with what do I need to do to make my movie look like a real movie? I was extremely fortunate to have like, you know, uh, parents that I could literally ask and they could give me a real answer. Um, the unfortunate answer was uh, you can't. You got to spend tons and tons of money and you need lots and lots of people to help you. So that's when I started to try to make more friends <laughs> to help me in my endeavors. And that's how I fell into the actual not really wanting to be a director so much, but wanting to be a director of photography because I knew that a lot of other people had really cool ideas and they just didn't know how to show them off to the world. I had the answers to those questions and I just wanted to I wanted to share those with with people. I, I thought maybe I wanted to be a race car driver or something else. But when it really came down to it, like I couldn't really see myself doing anything but this. Did you end up going to school? for this or is this a completely self-taught real world experience resume i guess for you i intended to go to college for i think when i fully made my you know decisions in high school i was like i want to go to emerson because that's where you're supposed to go if you live on the east coast but i quickly learned that or most educational programs like take a while to develop and film is a cutting edge medium. And by the time a curriculum can be written and disseminated, it's completely outdated and basically useless. And I was in a privileged position to kind of see this happen. And I 
was like, oh, I'll, you know, take some community college classes to kind of like get ready to maybe, you know, transfer over to a real, real college somewhere. But I ended up having to like skip my intro to video class, who was taught by somebody that had never picked up a film camera before to actually work on film sets. And in one day I would make what I, you know, paid to take that class for the entire semester and it was really kind of obvious that i what i needed to do so i just started working and taking all the work i could from anyone i could take it from in any capacity i i meet film school students all the time and they're great and they're smart and film schools have come a long way because that technology has changed but i knew early on that academia and i did not get along so i uh just was totally self-taught, started going to meetings and any sort of like film collaborative. I know Berkshire Film Commission or whatever, they would do meetings. I would just show up at all these events and try to make friends and stuff like that and learn on the internet from manufacturers' websites and read PDFs and just call other older guys that I had met on set and ask them what they thought about new gear or whatever. That was my education. I just dove right in because I wasn't, I didn't really know how to navigate a college course list. And I'm assuming by going to all these events and these, these networking opportunities is how you then came to uh, be introduced to, to Doug Trumbull and start working with him. Uh, yes. So actually, well, yes and no. So I first came in contact with Doug, Doug Trumbull because of, I think, the Berkshire Film Commission. He was giving a talk at something they did. And so, of course, you know, I, I noticed his list of credits and it was really impressive to me because growing up long before I knew who he was or anything, I mean, I think it might have been one of my dad's favorite movies, but uh, Blade Runner was like a huge part of my upbringing. I mean, just... Visually, it was it was stunning. I remember when my dad had like a laser disc player back then. You know, it's like, oh, you got to get Blade Runner. And this is before the director's cut existed. So it was really like with a really bad voiceover and everything. But that movie was still grabbed a hold of me, you know, and it's not really technically a good movie by a lot of metrics. But that's, I think, another reason that the visual side of of movies became my focus, because you can put up with a lot of stupid writing decisions if you're visually interested. I was asked if I would be willing to come on and work uh, in a camera department for a movie called The Man Who Killed Hitler and then The Bigfoot. And I remember reading that title and rolling my eyes and being like, oh, great. You know, some other ridiculous B-horror movie in the middle of nowhere that I'm sure is going to never come out. But then I saw the list of people who were involved and I recognized nobody except at the bottom of the list. I saw visual effects supervisor Douglas Trumbull. And I was like, well, you know, I'll take another meeting. And uh, we shot this weird little movie in Turner's Falls that ended up having an amazing writer director and uh, a, a really great VFX cast that did all kinds of old school practical VFX. And I had minor contact with Doug, but mostly became friends with other matte painters and effects gurus uh, that he had worked with previously in his career, uh, Richard Yurisic and uh, Rocco Joffrey. And I befriended them so much on set that uh, several years later, Doug was just reaching out 
to his network asking around for people that might be interested to come on and, you know, just assist him with the post process of his current project that he's doing for the New York Power Association. And the word got back to me and I was I just jumped on the opportunity because, you know, I mean, for me, this guy is like a personal you know, he's a celebrity. I mean, he's he's right up there next to Kubrick, literally like he helped him create all these effects. Kubrick was not a visual effects guru at all when he started 2001. He knew what he wanted to see, but Doug was the one who actually made it a reality. So no matter what we were going to work on, I knew I was going to be privy to knowledge and information that was extremely valuable to me and maybe not to many other people. Of course I said yes. And Doug and I have been working together for a couple of months now on whatever crazy projects he's got going on at the studio between commercials that I direct and of course DP work that I try to track down from coast to coast. What does 2020 kind of hold for you at this point? I know for the film industry as a whole, everything's up in the air right now. Well, 2020 is, you know, we had a weird start and it just continues to get weirder. I was supposed to be shooting a, well, she's definitely not a first time director, but this will be her first feature length uh, directorial debut. She's a, a horror writer and producer and also photographer. That was supposed to happen in Maine, I think, uh, sometime this summer, but everything is on, you know, kind of hold trying to finish up this project with Doug, which is sort of an ongoing thing. I didn't really sign on for any specific amount of time. But as you also know, with commercial production, dates are set, and then they go by. <laughs> and then new dates are set, and then they go by as well. I was trying to just snowboard for the rest of the winter, but now all the mountains are closing down too. So we're in a very strange very strange time right now. So if listeners want to get in touch with you or learn more about what you're up to uh, or the projects, how is best to do that? Uh, I try to make myself as easy to get in contact with as possible. Uh, my name is Samuel William Gove, and all three of those words together is my Instagram handle. Um, so you can message me directly there. I don't update my website at all, which I really need to think about. Um, <laughs> And uh, you can find my like telephone number on on all of my social media. So you can just literally call my phone. I know it's old fashioned, but, you know, I tend to ignore texts and emails. Not I don't actually. You know what I mean? So I'll be sure to put pertinent links probably to your Instagram page then in the episode description. But but say I'm definitely uh, thanks for taking the time to talk with us and tell us a bit more about yourself. Call me anytime. And even if you need, you know, a, a, a quick, quick take on some weird, you know, thing and you're like, I need I need somebody who's slightly off their off their meds to talk about this, uh, you know, call me up, man. All right. Well, duly noted. So, and uh, listeners of the show can, of course, find The Weekend Take on social media. We're on Facebook at facebook.com backslash The Weekend Take. We are on Twitter at Weekend Take. We've given in and joined Instagram at The Weekend Take. And, uh, of course, please check out our Patreon campaign at www.patreon.com backslash The Weekend Take. Where for as little as a dollar per month, you become a patron of The Weekend Take and get things like exclusive extended cuts of episodes. In case you want to hear more of the conversation that Sam and I had today, you get early access to episodes and patrons starting this season get patron exclusive episodes, including our massive 13 episode Patreon patron exclusive series, The Rise and Fall of Skywalker, looking at the Star Wars franchise, as well as the series and the future of 
the franchise. That's all patron exclusive content. I'm seriously, man. Uh, I don't know if, if your audience has heard any of that, dude. But like uh, that series, I've heard part one already is worth a dollar easy. So, yeah, it's kind of a no brainer there. If you're at all interested in behind the scenes uh, movie genre creation and you guys really get into it. It's really cool. So it's my favorite Patreon exclusive. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. So listeners can can join Sam and listening to that series by going to www.patreon.com backslash the weekend take and signing up to become a patron. Yeah. So other than that, Sam, thank you once again for uh, taking the time to chat with us this weekend. For all the listeners uh, out there, thank you so much for tuning in this week. And I will catch you all next week. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to The Weekend Take. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Visit our Patreon page to become a patron of The Weekend Take. And for as little as $1, you'll receive exclusive content and perks.